welcome to The Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. As the name suggests, we're rereading the Patrick O'Brien Aubrey Matron books. You're with Mike and Ian. And Ian, would you be so kind to catch us up on where we've been and where we're going? Mike, it would be my pleasure. It really would. So last time we were in chapter one of the Wine Dark Sea, and we learned how the surprise chasing the Franklin across the Pacific Ocean had lost her as a lucky shot brought down the sails aboard the surprise. The crew had worked well together under this weird copper sky on this swelling and titular wine dark sea to try to re-rig the surprise and take the chase up again aboard the surprise mr granger who's a trust guide had been welcomed at his first gunroom dinner despite some concerns from lieutenant west about what that means for the social setting of the gunroom there nature had meanwhile got stranger the sea had worsened jack and stephen though played music nonetheless until the surprise came or so it seemed under fire. There were serious wounds for Mr. West and for many crew members through the night. Altogether, a really strange first chapter. And Mike, this time in chapter two, we're going to learn the cause of all these unnatural, natural phenomena. We're going to hear about the fate of Mr. Dutourd and the Franklin. We're going to figure out what's going to become of West's ongoing effect on the gun room. And we're going to learn which of the Shelmiston sects doesn't play well with the others. And here we are, Mike. We, we had all of these questions. We were scratching our heads about what was really going on with the lighting and the sky and the sea and the rumbling and the wounds. Help us out here. What was really happening? What can we learn here at the beginning of chapter two? Uh, yeah, thanks, Ian. We do learn. And, and we have, you know, I think one of the best contrasts that I remember so far in the canon between opening paragraph chapter one, and almost the opening paragraph, chapter two, which starts to invite us in this idea of compare and contrast. And there's so much of that going on in this chapter. So our opening paragraph for chapter two says, a reluctant dawn, a dim blood red sun. And although the sea was diminishing fast, it was still wilder than most sailors had ever seen. While bursting waves and a still prodigious swell, continue here, you know, a desolate ocean, gray, now under a deathly white, rolling with enormous force, but still no life upon it apart from these two ships. And we remember last time we just had this big, vast, beautiful ocean with these two yeah, ships. Yeah. But here's the description now. Now dismasted and tossing like paper boats on a mill stream. They were at some distance from one another, both apparently wrecks, floating but out of control beyond them to windward, a newly arisen island of black rock and cinders. It no longer shot out fire, but every now and then, with an enormous shriek, a vast jet of steam leapt from the crater, mingled with ash and volcanic gases. So, ta-da! Mm. And here's our explanation of what in the world has been going on. Yeah, and it's a really stark visual picture. Uh, Mike, I can't remember whether I smoked that it was all a volcanic thing very early in chapter one or whether it was a genuine surprise for me. I think I was kind of guessing, but it was like, here we are. There's been this whole new island that's come into being with a volcanic eruption. And it's such a specific, it's such a memorable and unexpected thing to hear O'Brien writing about. 
as, and especially to start the book with, that it made me wonder whether maybe O'Brien had found some specific account, some specific source to base all of this on, just like he did with the wreck of HMS Alcest in the Nutmeg of Constellation. And long story short, I can't find one obvious source story. And if any of the listeners out there have got an idea of an account, maybe contemporaneous with you know, the Napoleonic Wars or even contemporaneous with O'Brien, let, let us know. Hit us up on facebook.com forward slash lovers whole or go on Twitter at whole lovers and tell us if you've got an idea here. But reading through the history of public writings, if you like, about um, subsea volcanoes, there are some examples that might well have been at the front of O'Brien's mind. In the 1960s, so recently to O'Brien's life, um, a new island was formed volcanically in the North Atlantic, just off the coast of Iceland. Uh, the island is still there. It's, it's, it's growing steadily. It's called Surtse. And it was quite widely written about at the time. And I can remember it being a big deal in you know geography classes in, in schools in the UK in the 1970s. In the Pacific, though, we've got to look for more specific mentions. There are a couple of famous volcanic eruptions of seamounts in the Pacific in the middle of the 20th century. There's one called Kavachi, one of the most active of the Pacific submarine volcanoes, which had erupted, um, when I was reading about it, eight times since 1939, and often would form new islands of lava, just as O'Brien describes here, that would, in this case, disappear after a few months and slide back beneath the waves. Most people have heard of the explosive eruption of Mount Krakatoa, of the island of Krakatoa, and how it pretty much obliterated itself uh, in the 19th century. In 1929, a whole new volcanic island arose from the shattered caldera of Krakatoa. This is in Indonesia, in the Pacific. It's called Anak Krakatoa, son of Krakatoa. And this new island was reputed to be growing higher and higher by several meters a year until a partial collapse and a tsunami in 2018. And as I'm reading all of these, Mike, what's really fascinating is that when geologists and geographers are writing about them, they get straight very quickly to the idea that these new volcanic islands are homes for really interesting and new combinations of flora and fauna. So these are naturalists and ecologists and evolutionary biologists, kind of science, science experiments gone crazy. There's a really interesting story about hammerhead sharks that have adapted and now live in the enclosed crater, the caldera of Kavachi. Wow. Stephen and Nathaniel Martin had been interested in the ecology and the biology of volcanic islands all the way back in chapter seven of Clarissa Oaks. And if you do a search for a volcano all the way back through the canon, actually, we've had quite a few mentions of volcanoes in the earlier books. So maybe, I don't know, Mike, Chekhov's geologist has been at work. And maybe O'Brien had this volcano episode brewing and maybe at one point, like we said last week, his uh, his idea for the wine dark sea reference in Homer and the idea of a volcano just sort of came together here. Anyhow, there's, there's a picture that we're going to put out on our social media, which comes from an, an eruption in Tonga earlier this year in which the sea is very wine dark and the sky is very boiling and livid and orange. And it's, uh, you know, it's a great reminder of how powerful these these volcanoes are. Yeah, I'm fascinated, Ian, that right here as we're recording this, we just had a big one in Hawaii. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's it's like, oh, okay, now attention is drawn to volcanoes. And like you had said, Ian, about starting chapter one, on the one hand, I thought, wait a minute, I think somehow I knew this was going to be a volcano. Yeah. And I pulled down my Jeff Hunt book off the shelf to look at the front. And I thought, no, no, no. I mean, it's got this crazy bright interestingly colored sky, but there's there's really 
I don't think a volcano on that one. But then my picture on my Kindle book has kind of the same thing, but clearly shows a volcano. And so for me, that was like, oh, I did see a volcano. Maybe I just imagined I did. Or, you know, occasionally the the neurons fire again from, you know, one of my early readings of the canon (laughs) a decade ago. But, you know, this was fascinating to me because I kept thinking all during last, you know, last week and, and all the work on chapter one, do I know it? Do I not know it? I don't think so. But then, boom, this opening paragraph, really there. Ah, uh, well, you know, like you said, Ian, you know, O'Brien goes on to tell us that when Jack first saw this cone out here, it's like 180 feet high. It's worked up. But by the time the sun's above the horizon, the waves have, have reduced it to about 50 feet here. And the surprises are, you know, they're lying to under a storm trisel. And I'm going to come back to you, Ian, as I always do on anything nautical about, sure. you know, tell us a little bit more about that. And they've worked all night repairing the ship and have gotten even busier since, you know, they had any glimpse that right over, just as Jack had predicted it would be, the Franklin is right there. So they're highly motivated to say, you know, we want to get repaired before they get repaired and get out of here. So tell me a little bit, Storm Trisel. Yeah, it was interesting. We're going to hear a few mentions of sails of this ilk for some reason in this chapter. Um, A trisail is normally a triangular sail, like a triangle set on its side. So jibs and staysails are triangles that are kind of set on their bases with with the long front edge going upwards. A trisail is kind of 90 degrees rotated there. It's easy to set a trisail in the Royal Naval fashion with, with a gaff along the top edge. Um, it's easy to set one on a short or a, a short mast or a stump of a mast. So a trisail like this is an efficient way of getting some sail area when you don't have the technology or the resources to make your mast very high. They're inconvenient to sail with and they're seen as old-fashioned. And we'll come back to just how old-fashioned later on. But when you're improvising, a trisail is great and allows you to make pr- some progress, at least close to the wind if you need to make up ground to windward. Handy for clawing off a lee shore, you might say. Anyhow. Meanwhile, as Jack is really driving the crew to get the surprise back into some kind of shape, he asks the doctor to come up on deck. He hopes the doctor is going to come and see this new environment before this new island vanishes altogether. Because as you said, Mike, you can see that it's decaying by a few feet at a time. And he's amazed at the sight of this landscape and at the sight of all of this marine life, fish of every kind, squids, a sperm whale, all dead, all around them, and not a bird to be seen anywhere and jack's thinking to himself that stephen won't forgive him if he doesn't tell him but jack can't bring himself to rouse stephen given how hard he's worked looking after the crew since he turned in so despite you know having operated with martin you know all night long and 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 like you said again jack so concerned about look this guy's gotten like virtually no sleep all of a sudden stephen shows up looking as o'brien describes it indescribably frowsy and frowsy, not a word I hear every day. You know, Google Ooh. Ingram peak is 1807 and then, you know, a slightly higher one in 1861 is really scruffy, really neglected in appearance is, is the translation there. But he's, you know, O'Brien describes him as bloody, unwashed, unshaven. I mean, so much so that he feels like he really can't even walk onto this holy quarter deck, this sanctified space there. But he greets them from the companion ladder and he asks, you know, what's this about this island he's been hearing about? And, you know, Jack 
you know, head straight over to him. I think he can see that Stephen can kind of barely stand up. He's so exhausted. He steadies Stephen. He walks him across the heaving deck to the rail and shows him the island. And then he asks about West. You know, we you know remember in the last chapter, West was so battered and and you know blood seeping, um, is kind of skull crushed in a little bit. Well, Stephen says West's condition is unchanged, and he's going to need light and a steadier ship before he can really do anything for him. Yeah, and this is this is grave. Uh, part of us is thinking, ah, see, Stephen's trepanned a few skills in his time. That's all going to be fine. But I'm also thinking, gee, this ship is a wreck. And they're far from islands and peaceful beaches and strands and tents and coves to for him to do his stuff. So I'm got I've got a few big questions about how West is going to turn out here. Yeah. This is a pretty ugly scene. Stephen's really stunned by the sight of all these dead species floating in the water here. He realizes that this is what Dr. Falconer, way back on Anamuka, half a book ago, this is what Dr. Faulkner had been telling them about, but had never recognized it as happening. Stephen assumes that Jack knew what was afoot. And Jack says, well, actually, I didn't know until we were knotting and splicing. And I looked around and the crew brought some of these lava bombs, this lava rock, some of them weighing 50 pounds. And Jack says that he thinks he might have realized it if this volcano had blazed away steadily like Stromboli, a volcanic island in the Mediterranean Sea, next to Sicily, as we know. And this, the Stromboli reference is interesting. This gets us back to another potential source Mike, that might have inspired O'Brien because the Roman writer Strabo, and anytime you uncover a reference to a Roman author, you think, ah, this is the kind of thing that O'Brien might have had on his shelf. Uh, The Roman writer Strabo, who wrote about natural history and geography in his book, Geography, wrote about the volcano Stromboli in Sicily. He wrote, many times flames have been observed running over the surface of the sea round about the islands. Posidonia says that within his own recollection, one morning at daybreak, the sea between Hera and Euonymus was seen raised to an enormous height and by a sustained blast remained puffed up for a considerable time and then subsided. And when those who had the hardihood to sail up to it saw dead fish driven by the current and some of the men were stricken ill because of the heat and the stench. So the connection to Stromboli makes a pretty strong uh, link here, I think, to the classical world. So it'd be really interesting to know if Patrick O'Brien had ever read Strabo. Yeah, I, I, I think it's great, uh, great, high likelihood. I wouldn't be at all surprised, as you say, Ian. Yeah, uh, I, I did have a quick look in the um, Dean King biography and I couldn't find any references to Strabo, but who knows? Yeah, yeah, who knows? It's funny, my bride used to live at the foot of Mount Etna, Mount Etna on, on Sicily, you know, for ah. several years before I met her. So, you know, she's replete with volcano tales. And I remember going up to visit later and, uh, you know, the guide having to call, you know, sort of the experts in Rome, make sure there's no activity. And, uh, you know, we we drove up only to be stopped by a big lava flow ac- across oh, the road no. there. <laughs> so fascinating um, uh, that, you know, how incredibly powerful these are. Well, you know, we've had this volcano, we've had all this devastation in the sea, we've seen the Franklin close by here, and now Jack helps Stephen back to the ladder. Um, You know, he's already told Stephen that, you know, they're going to be ready to sail in about five minutes. They're hoping to be so well prepared that the Franklin just surrenders. Jack invites Stephen for a late breakfast, 
and watches him go down the ladder, noticing for the first time that Stephen is moving like an old man. Oh. You know, and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, you know, we've heard Jack's observations about aging, about his own aging. We certainly heard Stephen's observations about Jack aging. But I think this is the first time I remember anybody thinking that Stephen is old. And, and I can't yeah. help but wonder how much of this might be part of Stephen's extreme fatigue from, you know, the operations, these horrendous conditions, the ship bouncing all over all night long. But then, you know, a little part of my mind thought, well, maybe this all of a sudden he's got this big desire for cocoa leaves. <laughs> and maybe part of that desire is like, you know, I'm just not feeling as energetic as I once was. Ooh, those leaves are helpful. But then, you know, maybe it's his concerns about Diana and his daughter. Now, speaking of cocoa leaves, you know, we, we just mentioned our social media handles. And, you know, we were asking, you know, if you've heard references like this, contemporary references, so many of our listeners are now coming via YouTube now. So please hit us up on YouTube in your comments as well there. You know, Ian, <laughs> Ian is our social media guy. And, and we have gotten some very interesting yeah. comments and, and notes in the past related to coca leaves. So, yeah, yeah thank we you. We surely have. Oh, goodness me. Well, now that Stephen is on deck and he's starting to recover, even though, to use a phrase that my mom and dad would use, he's feeling his age as he moves about the place. Even though he's feeling his age, um, he and Martin have got the chance to sit under an awning and look across at the Franklin and to look across at, out at the sea and count all the main, the, the genera, the species that are lying dead in the water here, remembering what Dr. Falconer had said about submarine activity. The surprise is still a, a, a ship of war of some kind, though, and she runs her guns out and has boarders ready as they approach the Franklin, which is still pretty much of a shattered wreck. The Franklin's not making any attempt to escape, and the surprises gaze at her with what they call a certain tolerant contempt, seeing all of the wreckage there. It's, it's not the wreckage that they're contemptuous of. It's the fact that the Franklin's crew hasn't got around to doing anything about it. The surprises had made their repairs. They'd already done that and eaten a pound of fresh pork and dried peas and moahu yams and had the indulgence of plum duff, all with a quarter pint of Sydney rum diluted with water and lemon juice. So they're a long way ahead in their day of whoever's there aboard the Franklin. And not only are they feeling smug about their seamanship, they've got food and liquor inside them as well. So they have, as O'Brien says, full bellies and benevolent minds. And Mike, there's an interesting little contrast being set up here. Yeah, it, it, I think and we said even from the opening paragraph in the contrast to the first chapter, you know, this is another one where throughout the chapter, O'Brien seems to set up these comparisons, these contrasts between people and groups of people, yeah. especially their expressed beliefs, uh, the, you know, the actions, the differences in their actions, differences in the conditions of their lives, kind of what's the outcome here. And he's done this before, but in this chapter... You know, this is just rich with so many examples. And so, you know, this description of the surprises kind of sets up one of the first ones. You know, listen to us, the way you just described the surprises, we're about to see the Franklins in a moment. Um, and so I, I love the way, you know, here we are, here's the Franklins, here's the surprises, and we'll learn more about them, about their leaders, about beliefs, all of that. Well, the, the surprise is all set up for seamanship right now. The, the breeze shifts and heads them, so they set out to tack. And this is, tacking is a complicated maneuver, but it's fine for the surprise because their jury rig is all set up and Jack and the crew are all ready there. 
Aboard the Franklin, there's a confused brawling and some kind of raft is lowered down when the surprise changes direction. The raft is paddled by a single man with a bloody bandage around his head. And Jack checks the surprise's way and just heaves to there for a second. And the man paddling over calls for water. He says his wounded men are dying of thirst. And difference in attitude to the situations here. Jack's all about doing his business by the king. Do you surrender? Asks Jack. The man who's clearly no seaman half rises up and cries, how can you speak so at such a time, sir? Shame on you. In a, what we learn is a harsh, high-pitched, indignant voice. And without changing his expression, Jack has the bosun lower away, the doctor's little boat, the little skiff there, with a couple of breakers in it. Breakers are small kegs for carrying water in boats. And the man on the raft calls out and says, if you have a surgeon, it would be a Christian act to relieve the pain of the wounded. And as the raft comes alongside, Jack says, by God. And there are these exclamations from all along the gangway. I, might, I, I don't know whether this is them saying wow at the state of this guy or seeing some wounded aboard the ship or just at the slovenly mess that's still present in this ship and this raft we don't know we just have to guess but he does ask bondon and place to pull over to the franklin and asks reed to take possession of her meaning pretty directly as a prize yeah yeah well We've got this man in the boat. We've got the Franklin right there in the offing. And we turn perspective to Stephen. And we learn that Stephen has been really thinking about and, and really worrying about that Dutard was on the Franklin. And he's wondered the best way to proceed. I mean, this whole mission they've been on for so long to South America is, is certainly against the French and their interests, but it's also directly against Spanish interests. And Spain is, as O'Brien says, nominally an ally of the United Kingdom at this time. Yeah. We remember that the British government had to deny the existence of this mission to Spain, and mm-hmm. hence the whole you know, arc of the, you know, the surprise goes one way while the Diane goes off another way. And now you know, that they're finally bringing this back together and on their way to Peru here, Stephen does not want to be recognized by Dutard. And, you know, Dutard could confirm Stephen's participation in the mission. And Stephen knows he's he's not, you know, Dutard's not going to be a French intelligence agent. He talks far too much for that. And Stephen doesn't even believe that he's a Bonapartist. But, you know, because he talks so much, word would get out. It would get out in France, and it could very easily go to Spain or to Spanish interests, even right there in Peru. Hmm. So, you know, having worried about all this, Stephen is now looking across, and the man in the raft, twenty six feet away from him, and coming closer every second, is as they say, Dutard, a man of passionate enthusiasms who had, like many others at the time, fallen in love with the idea of a terrestrial paradise to be founded in a perfect climate where there should be perfect equality as well as justice and plenty without excessive labor, without trade or with the use of money, a true democracy, a more cheerful Sparta, and unlike most others, he was rich enough to carry his theories into something like practice. That's why he bought the Franklin. That's why he was trying to take Moahu to build his colony, to build this paradise. And by the way, was going to knock all the natives on the head when doing so. And Stephen is glad that, you know, when he and Dutard had met, Stephen was going by the name Matronidomanova. Mm. You know, it's Matron with an H in it, but pronounced, you know, Matron, 
because at, at the time there was a connection between that, you know, the other way of saying it and idiocy, uh, O'Brien tells us. And Stephen decides, you know, he can't completely pretend that he does not know any French at all, but he decides maybe I'll pretend like I don't speak it very well to try to keep Dutard from recognizing me a little bit here. So Mike, it's funny, we, we've had names and digging for real characters and real associations behind names all the way through this book. And we've not yet really stopped to think about Stephen's name. And here we have it just almost dropped casually into the conversation. The Maturin's name, especially spelt with an H, has an association with idiocy of some kind. So hang on a second. Talk, talk us through this. Can we do anything to put Maturin with an H and some kind of real life connection? Can we do something with that here? You know, it's fascinating that I, I really dug into this one and um, I wasn't getting anywhere very fast. And luckily, yeah. the gun room, I'd love the gun room, yeah, yeah, yeah. had this conversation back in 2004. And, you know, some people were starting to point to a Saint Matron, a Frenchman whose name is Matron with the H in it. This guy being, you know, a saint who died, you know, they guess uh, about 300 AD. According to legend, his parents were both pagans. His father handled the persecution of Christians for the Roman emperor Maximian. However, the son is secretly baptized by Polycarp at 12 because he's got an interest in Christianity. And upon baptism, he starts performing miracles and and more and more miracles, especially driving out demons, shows this ability to calm rowdy or riotous individuals. Because of his influence, uh, his parents convert to Christianity, you know, including, you know, this almost sounds like St. Paul, this guy who's been, you know, persecuting Christians, becomes a Christian. Maturin becomes a priest at 20. There's a story that at one point the the local bishop has to go to Rome. And, uh, you know, as a youngster, Maturin is essentially caring for the entire diocese. His fame grows and grows to the point where Maximian, actually the emperor, calls him to Rome because he feels that his daughter has a demon and Maturin goes and casts it out, spends the next two years there kind of interceding for Christians to the Roman emperor here. Now, this, you know, what is this connection to idiocy? Well, St. Maturin was the patron saint of madness. Ah, now mm. he's also very well known as kind of a patron saint for infertile women, Ah, for the patron saint of sailors in Brittany. There's a little connection back to us. And then because over time of this association with mental illness, interestingly, he becomes the patron saint of comic actors, gestures, and clowns. So, you know, there's another, you know, when I think sometimes of Stephen's sense of humor in a funny way here as well, and and O'Brien's sense of humor. But so this may well be a thing. And when you look at St. Matron, you know, the S-T is not a long way from becoming S-D-E-P-H-E-N. Ah, instead of St. Matron, we have Stephen Matron. <laughs> so. Wow. So that's fascinating because there's a reason for Matron having that name, potentially. We hadn't talked about it yet. It's fascinating because it's still an unusual name. Right. And that's a reason why Stephen suspects that it might have lingered in Dutour's memory here. And therefore it's a reason why Stephen wants to kind of play it on the down low about who he is and what his identity is given his mission here and his interests. 
But anyhow, let, let, let's see how this is going to play out. Stephen is on his way over to the Franklin to help out here. Dutord helps Stephen up over this shattered side of the raft, saying that he's deeply sensible of his goodness in coming. And straight away, Stephen's mind is set kind of at rest, I would say. He, he realizes that Dutour doesn't recognize him, even from the few times that they'd met um, in a salon of Madame Roland, Madame Roland uh, before the war. And Mike, another little name to throw away here, Madame Roland, a real one, right? It is. It is. I mean, gosh, you know, I, I just love O'Brien's little Easter eggs here. So we could go right by it. Yeah. But if we stop and take a look, you know, Madame Roland is a learned, eloquent, influential French woman. She and her lawyer political husband, uh, a politician, were supporters of the Girondins. Mm-hmm. So one of the, you know, kind of leading, somewhat competing factions in the French Revolution. And, you know, the members of, of a number of these factions met regularly in her Paris salon. And, you know, salon back then thinking of a, sort of a gathering of people held by an inspiring host. And, and we'll come back to that. You know, she's the host. Is she inspiring here? Um, her husband becomes minister of the interior in 1792. So, you know, he's, you know, really top position here at, during the revolution. But he flees the country when Robespierre's extreme Jacobites seize power. So now there's this division. The, um, hmm. you know, her, their faction um, had had kind of hesitated at executing the king. And huh. the Jacobites kind of said, yeah, no, 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 we're going to. And then th- there was this big internal power struggle. So she's arrested. She's one of the first people guillotined in the revolution. And her husband, who's in, you know, kind of in hiding in France, hears about this and kills himself after her death. In prison, she writes a set of memories, uh, which she says were inspired by her hero, Rousseau. So, ah, Rousseau, right. right, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, as you read more about her life and her writings and her beliefs and kind of how history has revised about her and her husband, her husband was about 20 years her senior. You know, it reminds me so much of our recent discussion with Rachel McMillan about Clarissa Oaks, about Diana, about Sophie, about how, you know, women find each their own way to develop agency in in a society which accords them little. So she is so politically astute. Um, she, she has such a great influence politically, but unlike the salon hosted by the inspiring host, at her salon, she never said a word. She would sit there, she might embroider, she might you know do something else, but she listened. So all these top political figures of the day, all these influential people are there meeting and talking, networking, wrestling with each other. They, you know, they would meet right after kind of the big sort of the parliament, if you will, got out right before the Jacobites would start their next club meeting. So it was like, okay, this time to seize everybody here. And she soaked this all up. She developed fabulous insights on all sides. And so she used that knowledge to start influencing things. She wrote a lot of her husband's letters. She wrote a lot of his legislation. He was a phenomenal administrator in his own way. So the Hmm. the two of them made a great team. So that even though she couldn't participate directly in politics, she had these incredible impacts. Now, you would think that, you know, she's not even allowed on the floor. She has to be, you know, kind of up in the back of the gallery. I mean, she's completely... There, but she finds a way to get so much of what she believes in, 
you know, done through other people. So again, like we said, like Diana, very different than Sophie, very different than Clarissa, very different from Madame Roland. Yeah. But they each find this way. She was not a person who thought women should be actively involved in things. But interestingly, she did think ultimately they should have, you know, the same rights and everything. But her thought was, you know what, men are so constrained by the current system. Let's work that first, then we'll get around. So she, you know, she was not, I mean, people that kind of challenged her about not being more involved. She was like, not time yet. Yeah. yeah we'll get wow. there. Fascinating. Really fascinating. Fascinating yeah. character. Thank you. Nice work. Now, the connection here is that Stephen suspects, Stephen knows, in fact, that he and Dutour would both have been at one of Madame Roland's salons and therefore might have been talking politics and therefore some of Stephen's interests and identity might have become known. And Stephen's looking at this guy and thinking, I think if we'd had much to do with each other, he would have known me and I would have known him. That's put out of his mind, though, for a while. As Stephen gets to the ship, he sees the desolation. He sees demoralized hands. A few of them are just pumping. Some of them are drunk or reduced to hopeless apathy. Reed, the midshipman, takes command of the ship. Place hoists the British colors, confirming that she's now a capture. Dutour leads Stephen to the cabin where most of the wounded are. And this is a pretty horrible scene here. Reed has Bondon call for the bosun and for all hands who can be spared to come and help before the Franklin founders. Because it turns out that the crew here are so wounded and so shattered that they can't help themselves. Over on the starboard side, the wounded are in a great stinking heap, terrible heat, all suffering from thirst. On the larboard side, the heel of the ship has the living and the dead all tangled together, washing around each other in every roll, screaming for rescue. It's really grim stuff. Stephen asks a really interesting question here, Mike, given what we're going to talk about in the rest of the chapter. Stephen says, can you command your men? That's the verb he uses. And we discover that he can command a few of them. The few that he can come to help to drag the dead bodies out, to throw them overboard and to clean where they laid. They move the dead sailing master and Dutour explains how this guy was and and most of his gun crew were, uh, were killed by this one raking shot from the surprise. Uh, Bondon throws up a keg of water, one of these breakers, and starts serving it out to these poor, desperate people um, from a filthy cup. As Stephen looks at the cut on Dutour's head, he says, get your men pumping more briskly. And Mike, we're going to talk a lot about the juxtaposition of two different societies here, but it's really interesting that this passage emphasizes that Dutour would need to be able to command in order to meet the needs of the crew, in order to keep them safe and to help them make progress and to bring the ship back together, he needs to be able to command, even though his instinct is egalitarian. And I think this is the beginnings of a point that O'Brien might be making here, that all this democratic, collectivist, utopian set of principles could be misguided. And we might see how this distinction between the, the utopian, egalitarian world and the hierarchical world of a navy, how they contrast with each other as the chapter goes on here. Yeah. And, you know, you know, I mean, I'm even thinking back to when they first see him with his, you know, bandaged head in the raft coming over. Yeah. And you know, Jack says, do you surrender? Well, this is a guy who's been, you know, his ships have been actively firing on the surprise, trying yeah. to do them in, was planning to come, you know, wipe out Moahu. And he's like, you know, all holier than thou and righteously indignant. How can you even speak of such a thing? It's like, yeah, wait a minute. So like you say, there's this, you know, kind of, what I espouse to believe and how I act. Very different here now. 
you know, Stephen and Martin, you know, who have been up pretty much all night dealing with the surprises, now start dealing with the Franklins who have not just the, all the volcanic eruption wounds, but all the battle wounds that have been left kind of fettering, you know, since that uh, encounter with, with the Franklin and the surprise. They're exhausted. They're short of breath. The cabinet is stifling in heat. And up above, thankfully, they hear the bosun from the surprise who's come over and, you know, he's getting everybody to the pump. So these apathetic and some drunken <laughs> Franklins, the bosun knows how to bring them together. And uh, as well as folks that have come from the surprise. Reed comes in to see if the doctor has any word to send back to the captain. He's about to take the Franklin's master, Dutour, yeah. and his you know papers over. And seeing the cabin's condition, Reed you know says, would, "Would you like the companion unshipped before I go?" And Stephen, I'm not sure if he doesn't know what that is. He's also in the midst of a big amputation, but he doesn't speak to that. But right after Reed leaves. You know, the entire framework over the top of this cabin is opened up. And, and O'Brien writes that this fetid room is filled with brilliant light and clean, almost cool sea air. And so here yeah. we're back to a little contrast here. Yeah, very good. We, we've got the contrast between the, the environment of the utopian, egalitarian Frankliners and the refreshing, cool, clean air of the hierarchical Navy men aboard here. The surprises, who are, who are king's men, who are the subjects of, you know, of, 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 an, of an absolute monarch, you might say. Huh, despite that, they're well-fed. They're working diligently together. Meanwhile, the principled utopian um, paradise-seeking rich man's crew is in disarray, and they're doing nothing for each other, and they're suffering as a result. And the responses are really different. It's the surprises who are bringing the help and administering mercy here. And it's the surprises who open up this uh, the, the, the ship's deck here and admit light and fresh air. I think we're going to get some more insight in this chapter, Mike, about what each group's leaders expect of the men here. When it'd be interesting to see whether the arrival of fresh air and light continues. And it makes me think that may maybe a break for fresh air and a bit of daylight sounds appealing. Maybe you and I could take a short break. And, uh, and let's get back to this once we've had a breath of fresh air straight after this message. So as we enter this holiday season, I want to say a special thank you to our Patreon supporters who keep this podcast going. Patreon.com forward slash lovers whole. We love you. We thank you. Welcome back. I hope you're filled with light and cool and refreshment here. You know, and, and as we were talking about, about that contrast too, even the surprise is its own kind of unique self being made up not only of those Kingsmen, but also the former privateers and, you know, this fascinating way they put together. Maybe, you know, we'll talk about that. I'm sure some more as we go on here. Yeah. So we come back. Now we're pointed at Jack here. O'Brien's kind of changed our point of view. And, you know, you're thinking about it, Jack has disliked everything that Stephen had told him about Dutard. Um, you know, O'Brien writes, Stephen described him as a good, benevolent man who had been misled first by that mumping villain Rousseau. Ah, we remember her with Madame Roland. And later by his passionate belief in his own system. So again, Dutard, you know, I, my way is the best way, the only way. 
Now, he says Dutari's belief were based upon a true hatred of poverty, war, and injustice, but also on the assumption that men were naturally and equally good. Now, here's the interesting rub for me, needing only a firm, friendly hand to set them on the right path. So (laughs) men are perfect naturally, and I'll help them get there, right? Yeah. So, you know, and and this path, Dutard thought, was the path to the realization of their full potentialities. This, of course, entailed the abolition of the present order, which had so perverted them, and of the established churches. So, boy, you know, what a, you know, a little short phrase here from O'Brien about this, but boy, we're setting up so much. We've already been talking about the Shelmerstonians and their religious sects, talking about the, you know, we're going to bring all this stuff together here in this book, I think, here. Well, Stephen had heard in, in his earlier days from Dutard, he had heard a lot of this expressed with fire and conviction. But O'Brien tells us that those feelings of fire and conviction did not survive to reach Jack in Stephen's summary. So, you know, Jack, I think, is reading it as, as I just was there with a lot of skepticism here. And just to be sure, Jack needed no doctrine that leveled Nelson with one of his bargemen. So you know, Jack's thinking, yeah, the world is not really all of us completely equal in all things here. And Jack further disapproved of Dutard when Dutard comes aboard without saluting the quarterdeck without bringing his sword to surrender and without making any kind of a formal surrender. So Jack's standing there, but Jack goes into his cabin. Jack's not even going to speak to this guy and tells Tom, you know, bring that man below with his papers. Very good. Um, I I love this connection back to Rousseau and this epithet, the mumping villain Rousseau. How many times have we called Rousseau that? It reminds me, Mike, of the conversations we had many, many episodes ago with Brian Wilson. Hello, Brian, if you're listening. Right. This word mumping itself has got a bit of an engram peak. If we go on Google Ngram Viewer, uh, it has a peak at 1824 before fading into obscurity. So O'Brien's chosen a really good uh, good word there for us. Official definitions of mumping, uh, mumbling, sullen, sulky, uh, cheating, or begging. So that's all... All, all pretty much of a negative for Russo so far in terms of his character. And w- now we get this set-piece scene between Jack and Dutour. And it's for me, it's really delicious. It teeters on the brink between formality and real enmity between these two people and humor and almost banter. And I can't quite tell whether Jack is com- taking his own self completely seriously here or whether he's just making game of Rousseau a little bit. I like to imagine a bit of both. Jack stays seated and doesn't offer a chair for Dutour to sit down and uh, receives Dutour's thanks for humanity to his people, for sending the surgeon and the assistant. Uh, Jack asks an interesting question next. He says his first question is, are you a professional seaman or are you acquainted with the customs of the sea? And this is actually quite a generous first question it might be seen as a bit of a trap but it is a chance for Dutour to say who he is and what he knows and what he cares about and Dutour says I'm not a professional seaman I've spent some time on a pleasure boat but always have a sailing master for the sea and I've spent a little time there and Jack reads the papers that have come across and asks where is his letter of mark now this is a non sequitur for poor old Dutour it's not a non sequitur for us Patrick O'Brien readers because that was the title of a whole novel of a few books ago Anyhow, Dutour says he has no such thing. He has no letter of mark. 
He's a private citizen, not a naval officer. And his sole purpose is founding a colony for the benefit of mankind. And Jack says, well, if you don't have a commission, how come you've been taking prizes? And Dutura says, you will not think me impertinent that I observe our countries are, alas, in a state of war. So I understand, says Jack, but wars are conducted according to certain forms. They are not wild riots in which anyone may join and seize whatever he can overpower. And I fear that if you can produce nothing better than the recollection of a letter wishing you every happiness, then you must be hanged as a pirate. <gasps> and again, Mike, I can't tell whether this is Jack with his serious face on saying, well, you know, rules is the rules and you're breaking them. Or whether this is Jack going, you know, snap out of it, fella. You need to realize where you are here and provide a different or a more specific account of yourself. Well, Dutour very politely says, I'm concerned to hear it. The sailing master was in charge of that whole privateering side of things. And he has this paper from the American government kept in his writing desk. So Jack says, well, let, let's get let's get that sent for. And Dutour is skeptical at first. It's funny. He says, well, we've all seen what happens to sailors at work in a captured ship. And that betrays a little bit, Mike, I think, about Dutour's attitude to people and their motivations here. Right. I, you know, I think it is just, it's it's fascinating that Dutard, who believes in the inherent goodness of humanity, is convinced that Jack sailors, like like all sailors, including his own, you know, are going to take or destroy anything of value on a captured ship. So, yeah. uh... <laughs> well, he's going to have to tread very carefully here not to incur the wrath of, of, Cap- of a Captain Aubrey who clearly has Dutour's life in his hand. Jack learns that all of the naval officers sailing with Dutour are dead, but his servant is alive. Yeah, interesting. The, the master of equality has a servant nonetheless. And Jack asks Norton to have Bondon in place send over this servant of Mr. Dutour's and his sea chest and his writing desk and asks Norton, meanwhile, to take Dutour to the gun room and have the steward bring him whatever he calls for. So he's in law, a pirate potentially fit to be hanged. He is in polite society, a, a person who's welcome aboard in society aboard the ship. Dutour starts to speak, perhaps to make some kind of speech or make some self-aggrandizing defense here. Uh, but Jack is up and out and headed into the foretop before Dutour can start to string his sentences together. And it is fascinating in kind of keeping up with those contrasts that the whole time Jack's talking to Dutour and, and Jack goes on board to check, the surprises have made incredible progress on the Franklin. So again, yeah. this contrast, you know, these folks have had, you know, a half a day, a day and a half, uh, you know, maybe three quarters of a day to do something. They did nothing. The surprises in barely any time really have this thing in shape to, to where Jack's thinking, you know what? We could actually be sailing tomorrow here. Yeah. Back in the cabin now, Jack calls for Duhard and gives him his sea chest and his writing desk unharmed and still locked. Duhard says he's amazed. He never expected to see this. Uh, you know, see this again here. So, you know, we, we talked about, you know, in some ways he really expects the worst of people here yeah. versus Jack who kind of goes, wow, there's a big thing, you know, to be done over on the front. Wow. Wow. Look at how great they're doing, you know, and look at how well the surprises are doing, despite the bosun having been sent over to the Franklin the surprises are doing great. And these guys worked and were up all night in the midst of this whole volcanic activity. So Jack, who's delighted, people are even better than he possibly thinks. And he's pretty positive on him. Dutard, who, yeah, no, people are, you know, do terrible things. Oh, my gosh, your people didn't take everything I have? Right. Yeah, yeah. Dutard's got the writing desk. Adams comes in and Jack has to leave. 
he's even in the midst of all this chaos, they're going to continue to take Humboldt's measurements of the sea right on time. So again, again, in the midst of all this chaos, especially Jack thinks, you know, in this volcanic activity, we have to do this. So, you know, he kind of turns to Dutar and says, hope you can find your letter of Mark, jump into your writing desk. I'll be back. And here's Jack going again with all this chaos, with everything else going, ah, I've got a contribution I can make to science, a contribution I can make to mankind. Let me go keep these observations going. I love this. <laughs> it is great, isn't it? Good news for Dutour, meanwhile. The paper that he's found in the desk really is what he was hoping for. It's a letter of Mark. It's in the name of Mr. William Chauncey, and nowhere upon it is the name of Dutour anywhere to be found. And the text says, Dutour said nothing. He was yellow pale by now. He put his hand to his bandaged head, and Jack had the impression that he no longer cared whether he was to be hanged as a pirate or not, so long as he was allowed to lie down in peace for a while. And Jack says, Dutour is a bit of a sphinx, a sort of owner, a sort of commander, although not on the muster roll, and a sort of pirate. Without a commission, Dutour can't bunk aft, but bless him, Jack nonetheless puts him in an extra cabin next to the gunner and the boatswain, the warrant officers on the lower deck. Since Dutour has no surviving officers in company with him, he'll have to mess by himself, but the gunroom will invite him often, and Jack gives him liberty of the quarterdeck. And Mike, this is a really fascinating moment for here for me. But the 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 other downside of Dutour's misguided egalitarianism, we we've already seen that his crew can't function to get the ship back in shape. As a result of his egalitarian uh, naivete, he now thinks he belongs everywhere, but actually belongs kind of nowhere. There's not very much difference between belonging everywhere and belonging nowhere, and. Meanwhile, in the background, we've been talking about the revolution in France and we've been talking about Madame Roland and all all the citizens being dressed in black and this kind of, you know, dull uniformity and looking at the way people are treated. Here, there's Jack thinking that this man is technically a pirate, but sees a nuanced version of the position, works graciously to find him a place in the ship, doesn't throw him in irons as he could, but fits him into this blend aboard ship that exists, a blend of meritocracy and class and civility and society. And this is a really, really fascinating combination of the different parts of the environment here. I love this, Ian, how, you know, the surprise is kind of its own world, you know, and we've talked about this before. This is a creation of Stephen Matron, a creation of Jack Aubrey, a creation of the Royal Navy, a creation of all these smugglers and privateers, you know, kind of blended in here a creation of this ship that is, you know, kind of everybody has shares and we pay out, you know, together, but yet people are also raided. So it's a fascinating thing of different people with very different backgrounds, very different beliefs. But for the most part, you know, with the exception of of, of the Clarissa disruption, you know, very amiable towards one another. And, and you know, again, they're back together now under the harshest conditions, all these different people working together really well. Well, uh, these reflections occur to the author and they occur to us, but they don't appear to be high on the mind of Mr. <laughs> Dutour, who is so exhausted that the next role pitches him out of his head and he's got this head injury and Killick comes in, he's incensed seeing here that Dutour is, as Killick says, bleeding like a pig from under his bandage. Um, Killick gets a towel and places it under Dutour's head. There's some real compassion here from 
Killick, who had spoken so politely in Dutour's company just a few paragraphs ago, is also showing compassion here. Killick feels okay to dress down the captain on Dutour's behalf, but we're being reminded here that people are still people, whatever their tribe. It's a really, really nice moment here, Killick coming in to join in this tableau of their more or less happy, more or less self-sufficient society, really blended society that's in the ship here. You know, and as you say, Ian, you know, people people are still people. And and we kind of further learn that, you know, Killick's real motivation is, oh my God, he's bleeding on the cushion and I'm gonna have to clean it. And there's no fresh water. So again, you know, even in all our idyllic society, you know, there are people who have different motivations here. I yeah. love this. And, and and sometimes they're a pain in the ass to each other because Jack snaps back at Killick, never mind the bloody covers suddenly so angry with extreme weariness that it cowed even Killick. Really, really funny little moment here. And it's interesting that after this sort of awkward fencing, sizing up conversation between Jack and Dutour, it, we're, we're, we're finishing off here with a bit of a bit of pantomime involving Killick and the bloodstain. Yeah. And, you know, we get, um, you know, Jack's told Killick to get Dutour and his things, you know, into Dutour's cabin. And O'Brien writes, extreme weariness it pervaded both ships, evening out the gloom of the defeated and the elation of the conqueror. So we're all kind of this weariness makes us all equal. So again, there's, there's an interesting nod back to equality here. Both sets of men would have resigned prize money or freedom to be allowed to go below and take their ease. But there's still plenty of work to be done on both ships. And the only idle men on either ship are the medicos. Back on the surprise, Stephen is explaining to Martin how the crew over on the Franklin is replacing the mast. And he's kind of working hard to make sure he has all the nautical terms just right. And as, as Reed comes running by, Stephen stops him and asks him, you know, what's this called? What's that called? And then as Reed starts to head off again, he says, you know, Mr. Reed, you know, you shouldn't be running in this impetuous manner. And Reed's about to explain why he should be when Pooling's voice calls out, Mr. Reed, have you gone to sleep again in a hoarse and savage voice? So <laughs> O'Brien's just painting so richly of this, you know, how we're wonderful, how exhaustion affects us and brings out a different side of us, how, you know, it's just fascinating here. Uh, maybe I'm guilty here of, of digging even deeper for associations and illusions, but there was another fascinating moment here as I was reading this story of the raising up the top mast and Barrett Bond and going up in the rigging and the FID and all this. And there's a lot of vertical symbolism here of people and things being raised up. And I was reminded of the opposite happening in Treason's Harbor, the story of Jack going down in the hole and being in the well with Ponto and how right. here, as the ship fixes itself, people are being raised up. And maybe it's not an accident that O'Brien is dwelling on this up up and down symbology here and uh, that it's Barrett Bonden who's benefiting from it, not the captain, not the person with the gold lace. Well spotted. Oh, yeah. Well, Stephen's long explanation of the re-rigging process continues to the benefit, I guess you'd say, to the benefit of, of Nathaniel Martin. Meanwhile, Emily comes along asking on behalf of Padeen whether Mr. Willis may have his slime draft now. And Stephen says, you can have it at the third stroke of the barrel and tells Martin, if one, then all. And we have mere chaos. So another little strike against you know, open-handed libertarian anarchy which is that you know if we let one person have their medicine early then everybody else is going to want their medicine early and then we have no clue who's had what medicine so we're the, again the, the the comparison with the french revolution here valuing personal liberty versus having someone in charge with knowledge and the need for order 
And this is something that's going on or had been going on, you know, in, in, in both ships in the Surprise and aboard the Franklin. Oh, a different operation starts up on the Franklin, and Stephen has never seen this one before, so he stops trying to explain. Ah. And, and uh, you know, O'Brien drops a little bombshell along with a bit more philosophy and self-reflection, you know, a, a little bit more about human nature. He writes, until now, neither had spoken of West's death, apart from their brief exchange in the sick birth. But during a short pause in the hammering between them and the repeated shouts from the Franklin, Stephen said, I'm of the opinion that there was such damage to the brain that an even earlier, more skillful intervention would have made no difference. Martin says, uh, I am certain of it. And Stephen says, I wish I were. He says, yet again, what is gratifying to self-love is not necessarily untrue. And boy, I, I just, I can't, wow. I'm, I'm so like unpacking all of this, this idea that, wait a minute, West is dead? West is dead? And we've heard all this other stuff and we're just now hearing about this, right? And this idea here that Stephen kind of looking into self-awareness, self-care, his desire to do his utmost for his patients, and then feeling at first maybe a little, you know, I think a lot guilty, like, gosh, you know, if I had done something earlier, would this have worked? And then realizing, hey, just because it's good for me to believe that it really wouldn't, and I've just heard it from you, Martin, it's okay to believe that, yeah. even if it puts me in a little bit better light. And I think, you know, how many times do we just beat ourselves up over and over again? I mean, some people say yeah. that 80 or 90% of our thoughts, everything we tell ourselves every day is the same thing and usually not very positive. So yeah. I need to do this every once in a while and say, you know, yeah, you know, maybe I did do everything. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if only in the Regency time they had access to good therapy. Honestly, if only. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And a little neuro, you know, neurology programming. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. brain kind of thinking. I would love that, right, of all things. Well, the, the person who's nowhere near getting or needing therapy and nowhere near getting or needing any neurological help is Midshipman Reed, oh, the young. He's overjoyed as he runs by. The captain is going to send up a Latine on the Franklin's mizzen. And a Latin, but once again, it's one of these strange triangular-shaped sails with a, a gaff along the sloping top edge. Um, we're going to hear some more about Latines still again in this chapter. But this is a, a, a novelty for Reed. This was quite a common thing a few decades prior, but this is a bit of a, uh, a special occasion for Reed. And the sun is going down, the people are collecting their tools, and the day is beginning to wind down, certainly aboard the surprise. Stephen plays back over his trophening of West's skull, an operation that he says had never failed him before. And we get a, another little reminder of the different directions that people's minds take them in when Nathaniel Martin's clearly been on another train of thought altogether when he says, I wonder whether a man in my position should invest in the Navy Fives or the South Sea stock. And we've said before, Martin is getting more and more self-centered and self-absorbed as these novels go on. And yeah, maybe that's becoming his true character. And certainly it was where he was as he and um, Stephen were both kind of far away from each other in their reflections here. Well, Stephen sleeps incredibly well that night. 
And he wakes up thinking about a variety of pleasant things. Diana's kindness and caring for him in Sweden, you know, when he when he was down. Yeah. Uh, Goshawks, he's known. A Baccarini cello sonata, Wales. You know, he, it, I, I love this. How his mind is going already. But there's this familiar yet discordant noise that keeps kind of interrupting his thoughts. And it's, you know, he's thinking to himself, this, you know, I've heard something like this before, but this is way too wild, too much grinding and scrubbing and bucket clashing, all these hoarse whispers, everything. And then he realizes that the crew members are cleaning the deck free of all the volcanic dust and cinders. And But they just seem to be so over and above the usual. And then he remembers again what happened yesterday. And he realizes that they're working so hard because they want the ship in good order when Wes goes over the side today. And and another one of these, you know, these things that just they kind of give me tingles reading them, Ian, that O'Brien writes about West. He was not an outstandingly popular officer, nor was he very clever. And sometimes he did tend to top at the knob, being more quarter deck than tarpaulin. But he was not in the least ill natured, never had a man brought up before the captain as a defaulter. And there was no question at all of his courage. He distinguished himself when the surprise cut out the Diane at St. Martin's. While in the last affair at Moahu, he had done everything a good, active officer could do. But above all, they were used to him. They had sailed with him for a great while now. They liked what they were used to, and they knew what was due to a shipmate. Boy, and this just, oh. Man, this just really got me here. You know, yeah. maybe this is a prescription for a good society here. Right. You know, maybe this is not as deep as some of the philosophers that we've been reading about, but maybe it's deeper still. Yeah, maybe indeed. Really, really great stuff. Huh. Well, on deck, everything has changed. It's changed from the confusion and filth of the previous day to a Sunday kind of neatness. Everything is perfectly ordered sarah and emily finished with their sick birth duty and they're now standing in their best pinafores looking across at the franklin and they're looking at jack aubrey who's returning from the franklin in all of his post-captain's uniform all that splendor with nathaniel martin right by him and reed points out to Stephen that the franklin that's now sailing alongside with this great triangular latin is a splendid sight and that she reminds him of the old victory and Stephen says, what do you mean, the old victory? Has something happened to the victory? Was there, is there now a new victory? And Reed just says, no, no, by old, I meant in ancient times, in the last age, before the war even. And remember that you know, the, the Peace of Amiens came between the two wars, so the Napoleonic Wars is not that old really, but to read the youngster, the Napoleonic War is all as ever been. He says, before the war, Reed's father had been a second lieutenant on her, and she had a Latin mizzen, a mizzen like that. And isn't it, isn't it nice that they, how easily they, uh, the young can catch on to things that they perceive as permanent and therefore beautiful and therefore kind of abiding. And uh, another little prescription for society. We had one in the previous paragraph there, Mike. And we've got an- another little one here. Read helping Stephen to see something that's, that's to be appreciated. And by the way, along the way, reminding Stephen that he needs to shift his coat before the captain comes aboard. And if anybody's interested, I've found a picture kept by our good friends at the Royal Museums of Greenwich, at the National Maritime Museum, of the 1765-era HMS Victory 
carrying a latin mizzen so if we manage to get that picture out on the socials there'll be a small prize for anybody who can spot the latin so there you go that's the that's the old victory and now aboard the old surprise mike what's going on well jack is received back aboard with all the ceremony the surprise can muster right now and he in turn touches his own hat to the quarter deck so we're you know, we're back to the observing of forms here i think everybody has really put this as you know, a top day because of Wes' funeral here. He nods to Pullings and he goes below where Killick, who's watched Jack ever since Jack left the Franklin, has a pot of coffee ready for him. Now, attracted by the smell of the coffee, Stephen walks in to join Jack. Ah, So, you know, uh, we've got naval order. We've got Jack and Stephen together. All is right with the world. But then O'Brien, as as he's so wanting to do, takes us from that lofty thought back to the day-to-day world. And Stephen realizes, oh, Jack and Tom are just going to talk about business on the ship. So he drinks two cups and heads out the door. <laughs> I'm not staying for this here. But Jack reminds him as he's leaving that Martin's soon going to be he's shifting his clothes and he's going to be on deck soon. So it's kind of like, don't be late. You got to be there for the funeral and you got to be you know, prepared right. And Killig bursted with Stephen's good coat on his arm saying, what? Ain't you even shaved yet? God love us. What a disgrace it will bring to the ship. So, you know, boy, everybody is, you know, even in all this, you know, day-to-day ordinariness, all is right with the world here. Ah, uh, yes. It wouldn't be a it wouldn't be a day about shit without killing bawling somebody out. Meanwhile, this nice little uh conversation about the uh the establishment of the surprise here. Jack's telling Tom Pullings about the condition of the Franklin and her crew, and how he means to complete her compliment from men available aboard the surprise to form a prize crew. And remember, they've already sent one prize away, commanded by Oaks. They do, though, have enough men between their crew and the English Rantamers to put a crew together for the Franklin able to fight one side. And Jack had told those Franklins that those who volunteer will berth with the surprises on the lower deck and have full rations and grog and tobacco and be paid off in South America according to their rating, and that those who, on the other hand, don't volunteer will be kept in the forehold on two-thirds rations with no grog and no tobacco and be carried back to England. And ah, that, that sounds pretty fair, but you can see how it's persuasive as well. Good old Jack. Jack plans to rearm the Franklin with the surprises carronades, because remember, when she was being chased, she threw all of her own guns over the side. Jack wants to give Pullings command of the prize and proposes to promote Vidal to assist Tom. And Vidal's one of the Shelmistonian smuggler types. They can select three men to keep watch and they'll have somebody like Mr. Smith to stiffen their gunnery. And Jack turns to Pullings, giving him his honorific title of Captain Pullings and asks for his observations. And Mike, um, not for the first and probably not for the last time aboard the surprise, no. There, there are there are still signs of division amongst the surprises here, as Tom points out. Yeah, Tom, you know, speaking to Jack is, is a little constrained. He, he thanks the captain for the command. He says Vidal is a prime seaman, but he notes that he's the leader of the Nipper Darlings. You know, the Nipper Darlings and the Sethians have been at odds ever since, Tom tells Jack, the love feast at the Methody Chapel in Botany Bay. And he reminds Jack that many of the most respected hands and their friends are Sethians who may not react well to having a nipper dolling set over them. So as to your point, Ian, you know, there still remain below the surface here and sometimes a little above the surface, some of these divisions. 
Jack agrees right away. He says, thank you. I, Tom, you're, you're right. It has slipped my mind. Even though Shelmiston has a number of these different religious sects, this sect of the Nippodollings is a newer one. And Nippodollings tended to be quite quarrelsome by land if a point of doctrine is raised. And we hear that a, a disagreement over the filioque clause had ended in a black eye, a bloody nose and a broken head. So, Mike, hang on. Filioque, this is not Strabo geography. This is not volcanoes. This is not Russo. Who, what, or which is the filioque clause? Well, you know, this is this is Latin for and son, and S-O-N, right? Yeah. And it comes from a line from the Nicene Creed, the original Nicene Creed, 8325. And in Western churches today, we would say, and we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, he proceeds from the Father, and then here's this clause, and the Son, so that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Well, the phrase, and the Son, filioque, which you know some claim was there all along, some claim was added later. So we, we're going back to this creed from 325. Well, it, it you know kind of snowballs by 1054. So 1054, this becomes the absolute dividing issue between the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox tradition here. I, I don't know about all of our listeners, you know, uh, you know, even though I'm married to a theologian, this is, you know, the whole Trinity is, is hard enough to wrap your head around, but then to claim certain knowledge about whether the Spirit comes from God the Father or from God the Father, God the Son, and, and all this kind of, you know, getting so deep, all these, uh, you know, these lines of the Nicene Creed, most of them are added along history to combat specific perceived heresies at the time. And yeah. and the one here is is a big heresy around whether Jesus is less than God or whether Jesus is not divine. So it was kind of this idea of we want to raise him to, to make sure everybody sees that he's part of the Godhead. But, you know, the Eastern Orthodox and others are saying, but, but wait a minute, so is the spirit. So let's not demote him here. So yeah. while this is going on, I, I, you know, I think all of this is difficult to understand. It's difficult to wrap your head around. I feel myself like Job in the Old Testament. I, who am I to know the mind of God? Let me tell you, I'm, yeah. I'm doing the best just to get along with what I want to do here. But I think and I, I know enough to know that there's an incredible irony to breaking bones at a love fest. Yeah. <laughs> um, if we're going to talk about Christian doctrine and anything about Jesus and the Father and the Spirit, killing each other over this stuff or you know breaking heads over this stuff is not what they'd be asking us to do. But then again, that seems to be lost on us for centuries here, yeah. even today. <laughs> and it, it seems like it's about to be lost on Jack as well. Uh, the, the text says, as we wrap up the chapter here, Jack repressed some reflections on semen, on theology, on blue light officers and tracts, and said, very well, I shall rearrange the prize crew. <sighs> Peace at all costs. You shall have the Sethians, and I shall bring what back what Nippodollings there may be in the Franklin. By the way, what is a Nippodolling? Pullings looked perfectly blank and slowly shook his head. Well, never mind. The doctor will know, or, or even better, Martin. I hear his voice on deck. They will start tolling the bell directly. End of chapter two. Wow. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if it was lost on Jack or if Jack got the point of, you don't have to understand the theology to know these people don't get along. So as a great leader, <laughs> 
he makes a great decision to say, and I, I agree with you. Yeah. Luckily, we're going to answer that question that Jack poses here in the next chapter, right? Right. Yeah, definitely. For me, this this is a very short but really penetrating chapter. It's it's got an incredible mix of action, the aftermath of action. You know, it continues the storyline. We never sacrifice the storyline, but but you know, directly and embedded, we've got all these reflections on mankind and philosophy and human nature and self-awareness, who we are, why we do what we do the impacts of our thoughts, our beliefs, our traditions on our actions and our choices, on our experiences, on our emotions, you know, and, and how we are the product of our environment. Yet, you know, we can also rise above it, sometimes in very useful and sometimes in not so very useful ways. So, boy, to me, this is one of those chapters that, you know, it's one of the reasons I read and love and come back to O'Brien. Oh, wonderful. It is great, isn't it? And it's interesting that, that, that we've already had some movement along in the story here, even though we're only uh, we're only two chapters in. For sad reasons, the divisions between the West and Davidge factions have come to an end because both officers are now no longer with us. Hopefully, despite what we're hearing about the Nipperdollings here, we don't have a sect-based division arising here. And at least Jack has managed to avoid the possibility that that might happen by keeping them apart. Both ships seem to be under the command of good seamanship. Stephen's identity hasn't been uncovered yet. Tom is in command. Mike, things are starting to line up here. We're, we're actually headed in the direction of Peru, and it's finally time to get back on the mission. And I'm noticing as well that we've learned a lot about Dutour's character from other people's reaction to him. And we've learned a lot about the conduct of the ship from how he set himself up and from the results. But Dutour hasn't actually done very much yet, apart from sort of accept the privilege of a cabin somewhere next to the warrant officers. What's he going to do next chapter? He, he can't be as much of a pain as everybody seems to think he's going to be. Or can he? Hmm. Ian, that's a great question. And I think there's only one way to find out. What do you say next week to a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? With all my heart. Welcome to The Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. As the name suggests, we're rereading the Patrick O'Brien books. Oh, boy, there. There you go. There you go, Sam. First play for the day. 